the beauty of the gospel. God gets 100% of the glory. We get none. Amen to that. <laughs> he is worthy of every bit. Well, we've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts. And this morning, the next passage we come to is Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. And let's pray before we proceed any further. Lord, as we think about the wonderful work of salvation you have accomplished, Lord, we're, we remember that it's you who have accomplished these things. Lord, you have done so through faith alone, by grace alone. We understand our salvation is in Christ alone. Our authority is scripture alone. And all of this to your glory, Lord, alone. How great and glorious you are. How worthy you are of all of this glory. And we pray that as we look at your word this morning, as we feast on what Acts chapter 8 has for us, Lord, that you would help us to understand these things. We, we understand that just like salvation requires your supernatural work in bringing the dead to life, Lord, for us to understand this text this morning is going to require a supernatural work. It's going to require that the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that inspired these words to be written, making them come alive to us. So please, Holy Spirit, would you do that? Open our eyes to see what you'd have us see and our hearts to receive what you'd have us receive. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure how often I've done it, but I know there have been several occasions where I have hooked one of my children into their car seat only to discover after we arrived at our destination that the car seat was never hooked into the regular seat of the car. Doesn't exactly do very much good, right? And so it's maybe been, I guess, three or four times I've done that. And after each time, I'm, of course, thinking to myself, man, I'm like, I'm like this terrible parent, right? What kind of parent exposes their kid to that kind of danger? But of course, I thought they were secure, yet they weren't secure. And so the, the sense of security that I had was a false sense of security. And we're going to see in our text this morning that just as it's possible to have a false sense of security with a car seat, it's also possible to have a false sense of security regarding the state of our soul. It's possible to think that we're saved when we're actually not. The story of Simon that we read in Acts chapter 8 shows us that there's a kind of believing in Jesus that isn't saving belief. Because at one point in the narrative, we're told that Simon supposedly believed. That's the word it uses. But then as the story unfolds, it becomes evident that Simon's belief actually isn't saving belief at all, but is instead an empty and false belief. And this isn't the only place in the New Testament where we find this kind of teaching either. In John 2, 23 through 25, for example, it states, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name 
when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. So Jesus knew that there were many people who supposedly believed in him because of the miracles they saw him doing, but whose belief fell short of genuine saving belief. Also, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless, here we go again, you believed in vain. So there is such a thing as believing in vain. And so the question all of these passages should lead us to ask about ourselves is, what kind of belief do I have? And how can I know what kind of belief I have? How can I know whether I have genuine saving belief or false empty belief? Hopefully your heart is sensitive enough to be asking those questions even now. Listen to this observation from John MacArthur. One of the most fearful realities in all of Scripture is that some who think they are saved will be eternally lost. And referencing Matthew 7 here, thinking they are on the narrow way of saving truth that leads to heaven, they are in reality on the broad way of religion that leads to destruction. They will one day hear from the Lord Jesus Christ the most shocking, terrifying words any human could ever hear, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew 7, 23. To their horror, they will discover too late that there is an entrance to hell at the edge of the very gates of heaven. Mm. You know, guys, I've had some, some pretty bad nightmares in my life, you know, just over the course of life, as I'm sure you know, pretty much everyone has. And those nightmares, by definition, of course, have involved some pretty crazy and just downright terrifying things. But surely, this right here, hearing Jesus say, I never knew you, depart from me, is far more terrifying than any nightmare any of us have ever had. What a tragedy that I guess we could even call it perhaps even the greatest of all tragedies for someone to go through their entire life thinking, genuinely convinced that they're a Christian when in reality they're still under God's condemnation. So again, how can you know what kind of belief you have, whether you have saving belief or false belief. When you think about it, that's the most important question anyone could ever ask about themselves. I mean, what, what in this life could be more important than the question of where we'll spend eternity? And that's why I believe this passage in Acts 8 is so deserving of our utmost attention. 
the chapters just recorded how a great persecution broke out against the Christians in Jerusalem and then scattered them, that persecution scattered them throughout the region. The story then picks up in verses 4 through 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip, who, if you'll remember back a few weeks, was one of the seven men appointed in Acts chapter 6 to oversee the church's food distribution ministry, he goes out and takes the gospel to Samaria. And this is a really big deal, because until now, the gospel has been confined to Jerusalem. But now Philip takes out and, and he takes the, goes out, takes the gospel to the neighboring region of Samaria. And the thing to understand about the Samaritans is that, uh, to state it mildly, they weren't regarded very highly by the Jews. Let's just say that. Uh, the Samaritans were descended from the northern tribes of Israel and were subsequently uh, conquered by the Assyrian Empire and then intermarried with Gentiles, which was a big no-no according to the Old Testament law. Not only that, but they had adopted a lot of pagan beliefs and practices and mixed them with the teachings of the Old Testament. And so the Samaritans held a lot of the same theological beliefs that the Jews had, but the Jews refused to acknowledge any spiritual legitimacy in the Samaritans and in fact despised them. And so that's why Philip taking the gospel to Samaria is such a big deal. He's pushing through some ethnic and cultural boundaries that have existed for centuries. And as we read on in the passage, we see Philip encountering a man named Simon. And the very way Simon's introduced alerts us to the fact that some, pro some not so good things are probably going to happen with him. I mean, just look at how the, how the beginning of verse 9 phrases it. But there was a man named Simon. Now, keep in mind that the previous verse just told us about all the joy that there was among the Samaritans because of Philip's ministry. And then immediately after reading about their joy in verse 8, we read in verse 9, but there was a man named Simon. <laughs> so like today, maybe it would be something like saying, uh, you know, we were having a great time at the party at so-and-so's house, but then... Henry should. Right? Even if you don't know Henry, you kind of get the idea. He's probably not the most enjoyable person to be around. Right? And likewise with Simon. We're immediately given a clue that things probably aren't going to turn out very well with him. But let's read on in verses 9 through 13. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Simon... Had a pretty good hustle going on, didn't he? 
It says that he practiced magic. And keep in mind that this wasn't the kind of magic that you or I might go to see at a, you know, some kind of family-friendly magic show with disappearing animals and neat card tricks and things like that, right? I remember when I was eight or nine years old, I, I got this, man, this was a super cool Lance Burton magic kit. And I was convinced that I was going to be you know, some amazing magician. I would go around, you know, there was this, this uh, yellow cloth with a, a fake thumb that you would stuff the yellow cloth into the fake thumb and then you, it would, you know, disappear. And I literally wore the cloth threadbare. Like I wore the cloth out doing it so much. And uh, I wonder if my parents ever caught on. I don't know. I was pretty, pretty good. But that's not the kind of magic that Simon was practicing. All right. Um, the, the, the kind of magic Simon was doing was actually demonic. So there are some very dark realities associated with the, the, the magic Simon is practicing here. And he was apparently very successful with it because it says that he amazed the people of Samaria and they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. So Simon was something of a local celebrity and he really liked having that status. But then Philip rolls up into town and you know, basically starts outdoing Simon. Of course, Philip's miracles come from God rather than demons. So, of course, they're going to be superior and more impressive. And Philip's miracles also have a higher purpose than Simon's. They're designed not to make Philip rich and famous, but instead to give him a platform for proclaiming the gospel. Verse 12 states that Philip preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. You know, there's so much bad news in this world. So praise God that he offers us a message of good news. And as we look at the verse, this message of good news that Philip was preaching had two components. First, it says the kingdom of God, which is a reference to God's sovereign rule over his people that's partially visible now and will one day reach its climax in the new heavens and new earth. Conversion is often spoken of in the New Testament as entering into the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is like the realm of God's blessing that exists under his righteous rule. Then the second component of Philip's message is the name of Jesus Christ, which stands for all that Jesus is and all that he's done to redeem us from our sins. The Bible teaches that when we were condemned in our sins and helpless, utterly helpless to save ourselves from God's judgment, Jesus came to our rescue. He came to this world so that he could one day die on the cross and thereby make atonement on our behalf. So instead of us having to suffer the punishment that our sins deserved, Jesus suffered it in our place. That's how vast and incomprehensible his love for us is. And then after Jesus died, of course, he didn't stay in the grave, but he victoriously resurrected from the dead so that we also can share in his victory over sin and death as we put 
our trust in him. So talk about good news. <laughs> I mean, th- this is the best news that's ever been the case in the history of the world. And that's the message that Philip was sharing with the Samaritans. As we can see, it's a message that centers around Jesus. He's the hero of the story. In fact, back in verse 5, the text even sums up Philip's message by saying that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Right? A two-word summary of the gospel. It just says he proclaimed Jesus to them because it's ultimately all about Jesus. You know, if you ever have an opportunity to talk to someone about spiritually meaningful things, but maybe you, you... kind of struggle to articulate the logical progression of the gospel, like you hear me share on Sunday morning, just, my advice, just start talking about Jesus, and you'll be okay, right? Just, just say whatever comes to your mind about Jesus that's biblical, and it'll be fine. Just, I mean, talk about how, how perfect he is in his life of righteousness. Just talk about how uh, compassionate he is toward the hurting. Talk about how, how gracious he's been in paying the price for our sins. Talk about how glorious he is as he reigns over this entire universe from the throne of heaven. Talk about how mighty to save he is for all who will come to him in faith. Just talk about Jesus with people because he is the sum and substance of the gospel. So this is the message that Philip proclaimed. And as we see in verse 13, that Simon believed, or at least that he appeared to believe. It says that Simon, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. The story then continues in verses 14 through 19. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon's basically like, you know, man, that's some, some really powerful magic you've got. I have got to get me some of that. And he offers the apostles money, we see. Then verses 20 through 25. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So it becomes evident that even though Simon at first appeared to be a genuine Christian, 
his conversion actually wasn't genuine at all. In verse 20, Peter clearly implies that Simon, in his current condition at least, is destined to perish. He states, may your silver perish with you. One contemporary paraphrase of the Bible renders it, to hell with you with your money, which certainly seems to convey the sense of Peter's words there. You see, the problem is that even though Simon's behavior may have changed to some degree on the outside, his heart had never changed on the inside. He was still pursuing the very same things that he had pursued before his supposed conversion. Only now he was just pursuing them in a different way. His belief only went skin deep. And I can't help but wonder whether there are a lot of regular churchgoers today who are similar to Simon in that regard. In fact, it's, it's difficult to say this, but I would imagine that there probably are. In all likelihood, there are people even here this morning who are genuinely convinced that they're saved, but in reality, they're actually, they've actually never truly been converted. Their belief isn't saving belief. And so the all-important question is, of course, how can we tell whether we have saving belief or not? How can we tell whether we have saving belief or are actually making the same mistake Simon made of thinking that we're saved when we're actually not? Well, here's how. And if you're taking notes, this is the main idea of the entire passage. Saving belief involves a change of heart that manifests itself in genuine repentance. Saving belief involves a change of heart that manifests itself in genuine repentance. So let's look at those two components of saving belief that are highlighted in this passage. First, a change of heart, and second, genuine repentance. First, as I mentioned, uh, Simon's problem was that he never experienced a change of heart. Peter says to him in verse 21, your heart is not right before God. And again, Peter tells Simon in verse 22, pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. So Simon's behavior may have changed, at least in some respects, but his heart had never changed. See, saving belief isn't limited to our minds or intellect. It's something that involves all of who we are, including the desires and affections of our hearts. Be honest with yourself for a moment. What do you desire? What do you love? What do you treasure? To put it bluntly, if you still desire the very same things and, and love the very same things and treasure the very same things now as you always have, you're not saved. 
It doesn't matter how often you attend church. It doesn't matter what good things you try to do. It doesn't matter what kind of beliefs or, or, or theological ideas you've given mental assent to. None of that matters if the affections of your heart haven't been noticeably transformed so that instead of being oriented around sin, they're oriented around God, then you're not saved. You've never come to possess saving belief. Listen to what David says about God in some of the Psalms he wrote. And ask yourself, just ask yourself whether any of the longings that he expresses in these Psalms are present within you. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that we have to be consumed with these longings every single day. I, I think we all have some days that just aren't as good as others. But just listen to what David writes and ask yourself whether these longings are present to at least some degree in your life. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And finally, Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Has God so worked in your heart that you have these these affections for God, these longings for God to at least some degree. As J.C. Ryle has said, boast not of Christ's work for you unless you can show us the Spirit's work in you. Have you experienced the Spirit's work? Have you experienced the supernatural change of heart that's involved in saving belief. And then out of that change of heart, have you repented of your sin? That's the second component of saving belief that we see in this text. Genuine repentance. Peter tells Simon in verse 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. Implying that genuine repentance was something that Simon lacked even after his supposed conversion. He had never repented, which is just a fancy way of saying turned away. He never turned away from the sinful desires he was pursuing. His life was still oriented around power and fame and wealth rather than being oriented around God. And again, keep in mind that this repentance is something that grows out of the work of God in our hearts. And so the second component of saving belief, genuine repentance, grows out of the first component, a change of heart. I once heard a preacher describe it in this way. Imagine that, that we brought a pig 
into this room and then led that pig to the, right down to the foot of the stage here. And imagine that we also brought in this nice big pile of slop. And we set that slop down in front of the pig. I'm sure that pig would love that slop. Right? He'd probably feast on it and roll in it and he'd just think it was the best thing ever. Now, why would he think that? Well, because he's a pig. Pigs like slop. It's, it's in their nature to like slop. But imagine for a moment that we had the ability to somehow turn that pig into a man instantly. What would happen when we did that? How would that man respond to you know, being caught right there with a, a mouthful of slop in his, in his mouth and, and slop smeared all over his body? Well, he would be absolutely disgusted, of course. He would spit every bit of that slop out of his mouth and, and he would try his best to wipe himself off and he'd be absolutely mortified that all of us had witnessed him in such a condition. That would be his natural response as a man. By nature, humans find slop disgusting. And that's the way a true Christian feels about sin. And what produces repentance. God has changed their heart, their very nature, in a fundamental way so that they now hate the sin they once loved. They're repulsed by it. That's what's driving the repentance, that change of nature. And so can you discern this genuine repentance and revulsion towards sin in your own life? Also, keep in mind that it's not just about feeling sorry for your sin, right? You can feel sorry for your sin all day long and never actually turn away from it. Genuine repentance involves not only renouncing the things in our lives that displease God, but also making an effort by God's grace to do away with those things. And it's not a one-time event either, right? This is something that does, yes, have a, a clear beginning at conversion, but also something that continues throughout the Christian life. Guys, listen, this is, this is big right here. The greatest indicator that you're truly saved is that right now you are actively reading the Bible on a regular basis and the Holy Spirit is using the things you read to expose specific sins in your life with the result that you're then led to repent of those sins on a regular basis. That's probably one of the, the most important ideas you could grab onto this morning. The greatest indicator that you're truly saved isn't, you know, these grand feelings of spiritual elation or, or the ability to spout out Bible facts, but it's that right now the Spirit of God is regularly using the Word of God to expose specific sins in your life and leading you toward repentance. 
As a preacher named Paul Washer once said, if you don't have a new relationship with sin, then you don't have a new relationship with God. See, salvation isn't attained by good works, but it is evidenced by them. Good works aren't the means to salvation, but they are the evidence of salvation. As the reformers like to say, and as we just sung earlier in the service, we are saved by faith alone. But faith that saves is never alone. Meaning that it's always accompanied by a change in your life. It always manifests itself in a life of genuine repentance. Looking at Acts 8, that's what Simon was missing, right? He professed the right beliefs. He was baptized. He even became closely associated with Philip and started following him around and Philip acting as some kind of a mentor for him. Yet Simon never truly repented. The same sinful, self-exalting ambitions that ruled his life before his conversion were still driving his life. And that's an indication that the belief he had wasn't a saving belief at all, but rather a false and empty belief. As stated in our main idea, saving belief involves a change of heart that manifests itself in genuine repentance. You know, it's so common today for people to approach Christianity with what we might call a consumeristic mentality. A mentality where Everything's oriented around us, the consumer. I mean, that's the way it is with so many other things in our society. So why not with Christianity, right? And one author I was reading named Brent McCracken observes how people with this consumeristic mentality, they view the gospel as basically just a tool for self-enhancement. They don't really care about whether the gospel's true or false or about the implications it might have for their lifestyle. And they just want to know, does it work for me? What does it do for me? Will it make my life better, more enjoyable, more comfortable? In their mind, following Jesus is great as long as it's not too inconvenient. They'll stick with him as long as he seems to be adding things to their lives and not subtracting anything that they like or interfering with their personal autonomy in any way. In other words, it's all about them. Yet as we see here in Acts 8, repentance is the exact opposite of that consumeristic mentality. Repentance at its core means vacating the throne of your life so that instead of your life centering around you, it centers around Jesus. It's embracing Jesus as the center of your whole existence. Have you ever done that? Have you believed in that way? And guys, I'll tell you what I'm afraid of. I'm, I'm afraid that there are so many people even people in good, evangelical, Bible-believing churches who are essentially asleep at the wheel. 
It's like the car is speeding toward the cliff at 100 miles an hour, and they're asleep at the wheel. If that's you this morning, I pray that God would use Simon's example in Acts chapter 8 to wake you up before it's too late. Turn to Jesus this morning. Turn away from everything in your life that dishonors him and embrace Jesus as three things. The Savior of your soul, the Lord of your life, and the treasure of your heart. That's what saving belief looks like. Embracing Jesus as Savior of your soul, Lord of your life, and treasure of your heart. And if you'll reach out to Jesus in that way, then you'll discover that he has his arms wide open, ready to receive all who will come to him.